Hello and welcome to this SOAS podcast for the Department of Development Studies and for the Centre of African Studies. I'm Mike Jennings, Chair of the Centre of African Studies, and today I'm talking to my colleague Professor Christopher Kramer about the project he's been involved in, Fair Trade, Employment and Poverty Reduction in Ethiopia and Uganda. Morning, Chris. So perhaps you could start by telling us what the research was actually about. What is it that you wanted to find out in this project? Well, what we wanted to do overall was to look at international trade in agricultural commodities and the way in which they may have the possibility to affect poverty reduction through one particular mechanism. So most people, when they think about this, and most organizations like Fair Trade and so on, and most academic researchers, most people involved in the international poverty reduction agenda, tend to look much more at production. They look at the producers themselves, usually the small-scale producers. What we wanted to look at was labor markets, employment. So we looked at rural labor markets in areas producing export commodities in Ethiopia and Uganda. So we looked at coffee and flowers in Ethiopia, and we looked at coffee and tea in Uganda. So we're interested in in that mechanism, the labor market overall. And then within that, we wanted to try and understand variations. So if you're looking at what factors shape influence working conditions levels of wages does it matter what the scale of production is how much difference if any does it make to those wage workers in the production of coffee or tea or flowers if the producer organization is fair trade certified so it sounds that one of the objectives of the research was to challenge some of the assumptions that are made about the way agriculture is undertaken in sub-saharan africa the assumption that it's based upon smallholders individual units and to provide a much more nuanced and complex understanding of how agricultural production is actually undertaken. Is that a fair summary of some of the objectives of this research? I think that is a fair idea of the research. I mean, yes, it's it's very, very widespread assumption, both popularly and academically, in fact, and institutionally, that rural Africa in particular is characterised mainly by relatively egalitarian peasant societies in which there are smallholder producers chiefly reliant on family labor. So there's not a great deal of rural inequality and there's not a great deal of wage employment. And we had a hunch based on previous research we've done in other countries in Africa and elsewhere that this was worth exploring in in greater detail. I've read the report that was written and it's incredibly interesting. But before we actually get on to what your research findings are, perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about who the research team were and about your methodology. I think people listening to this will be particularly interested in how you gathered the data. There was a group of four of us based at SOAS, two of us in the Department of Development Studies and two in the Department of Economics. And we were funded by the Department for International Development in the UK, DFID, but we were completely independent. And I think that's one of the things that marks out this research is that we were not commissioned by a particular fair trade organisation or any other organization directly involved in production and and trade and we set great store by the independence of our approach and of our methodology and that undoubtedly caused us some headaches along the way but i think the gains from that independence far far outweigh the 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 possible obstacles that it put in in our way so there were four of us based at soas we worked very closely with research assistants and research supervisors in ethiopia and uganda that we devoted a lot of time to to hiring and we spent 
something like we calculated more than 1,000 days of actual field work, rural field work in this project, which uh, we're quite proud of. It's you know, a certain indicator of the, the detail and the, the effort we put in to, to the actual research. In terms of the methodology, we took an approach that we call contrastive, venue-based research. In other words, we spent a lot of time selecting particular sites and each research site, say for coffee in Ethiopia, we would have three research sites, three for each commodity in each country. And we defined those areas with the help of GPS devices on top of little handheld computers. And within each of those areas, we would select subsites maybe two, maybe three. It varied a little bit. And using the handheld computer, we more or less did a census within each of those areas because there are no accurate existing population lists. Most lists that you might get your hands on are either out of date or they almost systematically miss certain types of people, recent migrants, for example. So we created our own census, our own population lists that we could trust in. And within that, we did one very, very short survey just on the handheld computer with about five questions, just to understand a, a tiny bit about the level of experience in that area of wage employment or about levels of education and so on and so forth. Each area was, was chosen and selected because it was near to a producer organization that met our criteria. So for coffee, one would be defined near to and around a fair trade certified smallholder cooperative. Another would be another smallholder area, so-called smallholder area, but not fair trade certified. And then there would be another one further afield where there was a greater concentration of slightly larger scale commercial coffee producers. So we had these contrasts built in. Then we went one step further and used our main survey instrument, which was a long paper-based questionnaire, about 30, 35 pages. It took about two or three hours with each respondent to go through all the questions. And that generates a huge amount of data that we have to input to the computers and analyze them statistically. We went back a year in one case and two years in another, uh, mainly to coffee-producing areas, and repeated that survey so to a subset of people who had direct experience of working in, in coffee production. So we got a little bit of some idea of, you know, things changing, of the dynamism when you repeat that survey o over time. And the final element in our methodology, apart from a whole range of triangulating qualitative interviews and, and scoping visits and so on and so forth, the final main element was that we collected more than 100 what we call life's work interviews. They're like life histories, but their organizing principle of the narrative is an individual's, their experiences of working for wages. Often since they were very, very little, they were possibly children, and you are understanding the, the family circumstances that first pitched them in, into the labor market, and then you track their ins and outs and their experiences of wage employment through their lives thus far. Well, the project sounds like a, a huge undertaking in terms of scale. So what were the main findings of this research? I think we came up with some fairly striking findings. In the first place, I hope that we've exploded this myth, essentially, of rural Africa characterised by smallholder farmers with family labour only. We found in the first place that wage employment is far more prevalent in these areas where we carried out the research than has ever showed up before in other surveys in typical socioeconomic, um, particularly official survey work. So, for example, 
you might find the Ethiopian socioeconomic survey suggesting that perhaps 3% of people in rural areas might have wage employment experience in, in, in recent times. We found in our research sites in Ethiopia, 40% of people in one site, 55 in another smallholder area, and even higher in an area where there was known to be more migrant labor, larger scale production, so on and so forth. So wage employment is prevalent and very, very important. That's the first thing. Second thing that we found is that people who depend on access to wage employment for their survival are the very poorest people in those rural areas. So the people in our survey sample with wage experience are extremely poor. They're poor by comparison with the people in our samples who do not have recent wage employment experience. And they're poor by comparison with the estimates of poverty and the characteristics of those people in other large-scale surveys that have been carried out in Uganda and in Ethiopia. So that's the second finding. So we found there's lots and lots of wage employment. Wage workers are the poorest people. Wage employment is an indicator, it seems to be, of uh, widespread poverty. And the third thing that we found, and this is where it gets particularly striking, I think, for many people, is that the wages and of the working conditions were, in our samples, for the commodities that we were studying and the areas we were studying, they were worse in the samples, in the research sites, where there was fair trade certified production than in areas where there was not. So it wasn't just that fair trade appears not to make a positive difference to wages and working conditions. The wages were worse in most cases. Because that was clearly a very striking finding, we had to be you know, very, very rigorous and careful in our analysis of this. So we used the standard toolkit of, of a regression analysis and econometrics, and the regression analysis confirmed the descriptive statistics, the initial impression, if you like. And then we followed up with another technique, a statistical technique called propensity score matching to try and get a little bit closer. And what that essentially is doing is trying to kind of compare like with like. So you're trying to say, well, look, for example, if you have a 25-year-old woman with a certain number of years or level of education, etc., etc., does it make a difference? You know, if that 25-year-old woman is working in a research site with a fair trade certified producer organization or in a equivalent site, smallholder, etc., etc., without. And again, it confirmed our results. So it's almost impossible to be finally sure of, you know, the attribution, the actual causes of what's going on. But we have a pretty strong sense that there is this difference. And it's, uh, it then throws up quite interesting challenges for trying to understand, well, why, why might that be the case? I want to come back to some of the implications of this for the way the fair trade model works. But before we get that, I mean, you say that wage labourers tend to be the poorest and the most marginalised. I wonder if perhaps you could give more detail about that. Are you just talking about economic poverty, a lack of income or other other ways that this poverty manifests itself? I think there are a couple of things to say about that. The first is that there are extraordinary variations in the level of pay and in working conditions amongst wage workers and across employers. And trying to sort of map and understand those variations is a really, really important thing. People are paid in very different ways. It's very difficult to find out these things exactly, to try and convert the ways in which people are paid into comparable sums or, or amounts. That's one thing. The second thing is that, although, as I said, the bulk of people doing manual agricultural wage work are extremely poor, amongst the poorest people in, in the world, nonetheless, labour markets appear to be able to offer some prospect for 
you know, escape from abject poverty. So, for example, there are some jobs that are better than others. It's worth trying to understand who gets those jobs, etc. The other thing, for example, is that in flowers in Ethiopia, we found in one town, which has grown very rapidly as a, a re- direct result of the growth of the cut flower export trade from Ethiopia, there are large numbers of people. I mean, there are something like more than 10,000 people employed in flower production there. And, you know, many of these these people, most of them are women. Many of them are paid pretty low. Nonetheless, it's important to realize that initially people were paying in order to get those jobs, bribing people to get those jobs, you know, and they were migrating to get those jobs. So wages may be low, but they're very, very important in people's survival. And in some cases, as I was saying, they're modest economic advancement. In terms of understanding what kind of poverty you you asked about, I mean, as you know, it's very, very difficult to measure directly poverty in income and expenditure terms. So we use, apart from just wage payment levels, information on that, we use information on people's education and on their assets and on their diets. So there are lots of different ways you can try and get at levels of welfare. It's very, very commonly understood by economists that level of education is a very important predictor or indicator of the level of poverty. So we've got information on all of these things and we try and um, combine the information on diet, nutrition, on education, and so on and so forth to get a kind of fairly robust sense of who are the poorest people. Obviously, one of the key factors that drives the fair trade movement is concern for the welfare of poor people precisely to counter those issues that you've talked about poor educational attainment poor diet and so on so this for the findings for this research seem to be worrying and I, I just wondered if we could go back perhaps to the mechanisms about why this might be occurring which you've said are complex and difficult but perhaps we can speculate a little on them and does this bring us back to this issue about assumptions about the way that agriculture and agricultural production is undertaken is this because for example fair trade organizations assume that all of those who are working on coffee or tea or perhaps flowers are individual families so therefore they don't hire wage laborers which your research clearly shows is wrong so is it is that the problem from the fair trade perspective that might lead to this mechanism that you've discovered i think there are a range of things going on here it's important to understand about fair trade that they have two main different kinds of standards so there's one set of standards specifically for what are called hired labor situations and that's mainly sort of plantations most typically things like bananas in 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 south america and central america and so on and so forth in our research that was those standards would apply in the production of flowers from ethiopia then the second set of fair trade standards is for what they call smallholder producer organizations that's essentially cooperatives so these are large societies of producers with a membership and there traditionally fair trade standards were based on the idea as i've said that this is small-scale producers using family labor that there isn't wage employment so there's been a sort of, in what we would say is a really a blind spot to the significance of, of wage employment within small-scale production, or so-called small-scale. I think one of the things that's really, really important that's come out clearly in our research is that cooperatives are not egalitarian organizations. We have extraordinary data from produce ledgers and so on and so forth showing the levels of inequality in contributions to what's sold through the cooperatives. And so there's a, a large number of members of cooperatives who do rely, uh, the peak 
harvest season, for example, in coffee, very much on hiring local or in some cases inward migrating labor and so on and so forth. So I think there is a problem that fair trade organizations have till very recently almost completely ignored wage employment. They have begun to acknowledge more recently that wage employment is more significant than they'd realized in the past, and they're trying to adjust some of their standards. In our view, I think they have not gone far enough. Um, There's a sort of slightly arbitrary cutoff of standards applying to those producers who hire at least 20 workers. There are many, many producers that hire in labor, but less than that, 5, 10, 15, so on and so forth. I think a, a second problem is the what you might call the auditing problem and this is this ought really not to come as a great surprise after years of us being exposed to horse meat scandals to rana plaza to enron auditing malfeasance etc etc and in fair trades case i think the problem is that there are you know there's probably not enough resources devoted to regular really careful monitoring and auditing so there's a lot of practices that people either are not looking into closely enough or that it's quite easy to evade one thing that i think will be particularly shocking to those who read your research is the finding that there's significant teenage and child labor involved in some of this production I wonder if you, perhaps you could talk to us about that and have you spoken to fair trade organisations about this and how have they responded to that particular finding? Yes, this really is an important thing. I, when we set out with this research, we did not go looking for child labour. But by definition, if you look at our questionnaire for the large survey, we're only really trying to talk to adults. And those adults are defined as 14-year-olds and above. So very, very young. So we weren't going looking for child labour. By definition of adults as 14 and above, it's certainly the case that we were going to come across if they existed, very young, you know, teenage workers, school age children, and we did. What was very, very interesting was in the more qualitative research, when we were doing the life histories, we couldn't escape the fact that across our research sites, where there was fair trade certified production and where there was not, there was also quite widespread use of child labour, and that is not children working for their own families or working for a wage in the school holidays. That is people not going to school because they are having to work for wages to support their families. So we don't have a statistical sense of the scale of that because it wasn't in our questionnaire. But it is very obvious to us that it exists and is quite an important phenomenon. And that clearly raises an issue about you know how to deal with that and so on and so forth. Fair trade themselves have been, I would say, a, a little bit rattled by this finding in our research. And it's not the main finding in our research at all, but it's an important one. And, and, and I think the, the issue for us is fundamentally two things. First is we need to protect the confidentiality of our um, our respondents. So we're unable to release direct information on names and addresses and so on and so forth of those in, involved in this practice. That's not the nature of social science research like this, I think. But the second thing is, I think, that efforts to sort of more or less, you know, sort of slightly moralistic, more or less kind of criminalizing efforts to kind of clamp down on this in a context where it is very, very important, where there are large numbers of scattered, small and slightly less small producers and so on and so forth. It's virtually impossible to kind of go knocking on doors and say, you know, that's very naughty, you must stop this. I think the, the ways to address this are to raise it as an important issue and to address it more indirectly through, for example, government policies on keeping people in school and, and other labour market related policy interventions. 
Uh, clearly, the research has generated some very interesting data and findings. I wonder if you could talk us through some of the implications of the research. The implications are in the first place, and I think Fair Trade, for example, does acknowledge this and is trying to acknowledge this, the standards themselves and the procedures for Fair Trade International and the Fair Trade Foundation have to pay much more attention, more than they have done already and much more in the future, on the significance of wage employment and the conditions under which people are working for wages, if that's possible. So that's one implication. That might be in, in, in the standards themselves and how they're defined and implemented. The second is, I think, that rather more research needs to be done on this topic. Fairtrade themselves commission quite a lot of research from their, what they call their research partners, either consultancy firms that they hire or other um, so-called academics. They have not produced very rigorous research in many ways, and they've been particularly bad at trying to understand wage employment. So there's a lot more research that needs to be done. I would prefer it to be independent research. So that's the, the second thing. Third thing for those organisations is that I think that the labels, the information available to consumers needs to reflect these facts much more accurately than it does. I think sometimes the labelling information can give a slightly false idea of the nature of rural cooperatives, you know, conditions under which the things we buy as consumers in advanced countries are produced. I suppose those really are, are, are the kind of main implications. More widely, I think we've begun only to scratch the surface of understanding about the significance of wage employment in the production of agricultural commodities and in, in, in rural areas of Africa and probably other areas too. And what about implications for donors? For example, there's much emphasis within organisations like the Department for International Development on the importance of wage labour and work, or, and decent work as they frame it, as the main route out of poverty. So are there any implications for that broad approach that you think flow from this research? I think you're right that this is something that major aid organisations have slightly belatedly, in, in my view, come to realise, which is that you know wage and labour markets are important. I think understanding of those labour markets remains very, very limited. And I think that, that it would be good to encourage more research along the lines of what we've done. I think the comparative approach that tries to understand differences across, if you like, institutional arrangements for the production of, be it agricultural commodities or, or staples or whatever it may be, is really, really useful to trying to understand, well, look, you know, where is the demand for labour? What are the conditions under which there appears to be slightly better treatment of workers and better pay? And given what we begin to understand about that, where are the points at which governments and international agencies may be able to intervene to try and improve that? And finally, a question that I think those people listening to this podcast, and certainly me, uh, would be interested to know the answer to, which is, how can we be ethical or caring consumers in the light of your research? For example, should I really be buying fair trade coffee? Or if not, what should I be doing? Um, I think it's not for me to tell you or anyone else, Mike, what to buy or what not to buy. I think what matters is if you read the fair trade literature on the websites and in the brochures, what's emphasized again and again is informed choice for consumers. Now, I think that's what our research is 
really trying to do, which is to show that the people who are spending extra money that they often don't really have much of as they walk down the supermarket aisle to choose their coffee, thinking that they are making a difference internationally. I think those people have been provided to date with inadequate information. So all I can say is, you know, consumers need to think very carefully about what information they think they're being given on the labels, on the tin. What does it say? Is it really telling you enough? So I think that's uh, all I can really say is I, I hope that we're adding to the information available to consumers. Well, thank you very much, Chris. This is a fascinating and important project, and I hope that it gets picked up on by those people who really need to be paying attention to the data and the findings that have been drawn out in this report. Thank you.